This morning, we're going to get back to our study of Jesus' Sermon on the Plain, as we're calling it, in Luke chapter 6. And we're going to focus in, in specifically on verses 27 and 28. And the title of this message is Love Your Enemies. So let me read those verses as we get started. Luke 6, 27 and 28. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. If I ask you to list some of the characteristics, some of the marks of a, of a true Christian, what would be the things you put on the, that list? Uh, how about a repentant heart? I think that would be a good one. Uh, could we add humility? I think that would be another characteristic of a Christian. Uh, being in the world, but not of the world. Uh, separation from the, the ways of the world is a, is a good one. Growing spiritually, bearing the fruit of the Spirit, uh, being obedient to the Word of God and having a hunger for the truth of the Word of God. Uh, those would be some other marks of a, of a true Christian. And then we could add a having a transformed life and uh, living for the glory of God. And, and there definitely would be some others, but all these things I've mentioned would be found in the life of a true Christian believer. But there's one mark of a true believer that I have not included on the list. And I hope you know what that is. It's love, love. Selfless, self-sacrificing love is one of the greatest and most important marks of a true believer in Jesus Christ. When I speak of Christian love, I'm talking about love for God, of course, uh, love for those who are in the family of God, your fellow believers, uh, love for your family, love for your friends. Uh, no, no question about that. Uh, those are the low-hanging fruit, you might say, when it comes to our Christian love. But what about unbelievers? What about our enemies? Well, as, as you're going to see, they are also to be included among those we are commanded to love as Christians. Now, make sure you understand here, we're not talking about uh, loving the world system when we talk about loving unbelievers. We're not talking about loving evil. Uh, we are not talking about loving the things of, of Satan, who is the, the god of this world. Uh, but we are to love those who find themselves trapped by the devil. And we are to uh, love those who find themselves caught up in the wickedness of this world. And Jesus leaves us no doubt about that. The people Jesus directed this message to are those who gathered that day who were his disciples. Uh, disciples means learners. Uh, he's not talking in this particular passage about those who were just there for the spectacle of the miracles and the show, you might say. This message was not directly spoken to just the apostles, although they were certainly uh, to be included here, but it was to those who were interested in Jesus and following him as their teacher. Some of these learners, some of these disciples would have been true believers. They would have accepted Christ as their Savior and Messiah. Some were seekers. They needed more truth in order to believe in Jesus as Savior. Some were not really buying into Jesus' teaching and possibly would walk away at some point in the future. Jesus makes a distinction as he begins this part of his sermon. Notice how he begins. 
But I say to you who hear, those who had the spiritual ears to hear would have been those who were his true disciples. They were the ones whom Jesus was targeting with this part of his message. And there's a, a very good reason for that. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. This part of Jesus' sermon was for those who had the Spirit of God in their heart and those who were ready to hear and obey the truth of the Word of God. In today's English, Jesus was telling these hearers, what I'm about to say is for those of you who truly get it. Now with that, he gave them this command, love your enemies. Now, let's be sure here that we get the full sense in which this command was given. What I mean by that is, can you love your enemy if you don't ever go around them? Can you really love your enemy if you avoid coming in contact with them as much as possible? I, I don't think that would be the case. Now, you could argue, but I might be tempted to do some bad things, the same bad things they're doing if I get around them, if I hang around with them. Uh, they might do bad things to me if I go where they are, if they find out that I'm a Christian. And all, all those things are true. But for a true follower of Christ to isolate himself or herself from the world, uh, for a true follower of Christ to hate or resent unbelievers and avoid them is to go against the clear mandate that Jesus uh, makes here in, in this sermon and also uh, his mandate from Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20. Uh, in uh, Matthew 28, Jesus tells us to take the gospel to all the world. Uh, that would certainly include those who uh, do not believe. You can't love your enemies the way Jesus has in mind if you aren't around them. So don't try to shut yourself off. Don't try to isolate yourself from the unbelieving world. That's not loving your enemies. It's hard to do good. It's hard to bless them if you're not around them. True disciples of Jesus love their enemies because it's a command from the Lord Jesus. But I think we need to ask ourselves here, is that a normal thing that people do? Is that what you see being taught is that what you see being lived out in the world around us? Is that what we're seeing uh, on the news? Is that what we're glorifying in the movies and books and so forth? Uh, absolutely not. Not even close. And I would also say it wasn't the norm in Jesus' day either. Uh, that's one way the world has not changed. In fact, it wasn't even the norm among those who suppose themselves to be religious and righteous and God's chosen people. It wasn't even the norm for the Jews. Now, among the Jews in Jesus' day, it was actually considered a sin if you did love your enemy. Uh, that's why in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, he, he brought that fact up. He said, you have heard it said. In other words, you have been taught this is what your religious leaders are teaching you. You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's Matthew 5, 43. Uh, this is what the Jews were being taught in their synagogues. This was their religious belief. Instead of loving your enemies, the Jewish people were being taught by their religious leaders to hate your enemy. But then Jesus also went on to state in this Sermon on the Mount, but I say to you 
love your enemies. That's in Matthew 5, verse 44. Uh, Jesus gave the same command there as he does in our passage in Luke 6, 27. Your religion is telling you to hate, but I, the Son of God, your Messiah, am telling you just the opposite, love. To not hate your enemies would have been considered immoral to the Jews. This would have been viewed as an ungodly statement by Jesus and very offensive. Godliness to the Jew in those days meant you hated your enemies. That's what they had been taught, that's what they believed, and that's what they practiced. If you want to put it in today's setting, this is how radical what Jesus was saying would have been to a Jew in Israel. Love the Palestinian suicide bomber. Love the Hezbollah who were firing rockets into your homes. Uh, and what would uh, someone in Israel be saying to that? You've got to be kidding, right? You've got to be kidding. Except Jesus wasn't kidding. And those who had the Holy Spirit in their hearts and could truly discern spiritual truth would recognize that Jesus not only wasn't kidding, he was speaking the words of God. Others in the audience that day could not uh, accept this. They probably got up and left shaking their heads when Jesus spoke these words. The Jews of Jesus' day had elevated hatred for their enemies to the status of a spiritual virtue. Uh, this was especially aimed at their Roman occupiers, but really to all Gentiles, everyone outside Judaism. You could probably call the Essenes the most devout Jewish religious sect of Jesus' day. They were monastic. They isolated themselves from all outside influences by setting up their uh, shop, setting up their dwellings out in the desert. Uh, and this is a quote I ran across from some of the Essene literature. Love all sons of light and hate all sons of darkness. Now you say, well, that doesn't sound too bad. That's that sounds like a pretty right-on statement. Uh, but if you look at the interpretation they made of that statement, it meant hate all unbelievers, not just Gentiles, but also non-Essene Jews as well. The Pharisees taught pretty much the same thing. They were a little bit less narrow in their hating, but not much. Uh, one of the Pharisees' rules of conduct was this. If a Jew sees a Gentile fallen into the sea, let him by no means lift him out of there. For it is written, thou shalt not rise up against the blood of thy neighbor. But this man is not thy neighbor. In other words, if he's a Gentile, let him drown. I've heard that in Roman writings around this time, they actually accused the Jews of hating the human race. Uh, that's not the way you ordinarily would want people thinking of you. But the point is the Jews were known for their hatred of others, not for their love. How did the Jews justify their hatred of all those outside of Judaism? Well, they used the Old Testament scriptures, as you might expect, but they really took some liberties with their interpretation of what God's word actually says. They also chose to ignore passages which clearly speak against hatred of your enemies. Historically, since God had... Uh, on a number of occasions used Israel as an instrument of judgment on pagan nations, the Jews came to feel like they had the right to judge other people. And they judged them all bad, not worth saving. If you go back and look, you're going to find that God also used Assyria, 
and Egypt and Persia and other nations as this instruments of judgment at different times. God used all manner of peoples and things to execute his judgment, not just Israel. If you look at some of the Psalms, uh, you might also uh, find evidence or what appears to be evidence that uh, uh, we are to hate our enemies. But uh, if you... Uh, If you look carefully at the Psalms, what you're going to find is the uh, God certainly uh, can take out vengeance on his enemies, but he is the one who does it. Uh, the call of the Psalms is for God to do it, not for his people to do it. Um, it's the height of arrogance, really, to uh, think that uh, people have been delegated to do what only God can do, and that's carry out judgment. So this is, this is really a bad assumption on the part of the Jews. The truth from God's perspective goes back to Deuteronomy 32, verse 35. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Leviticus 19, verse 18, I think gives us a, a really good summary of the, of the way God's word looks at this. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the sons of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, there may be a question about who your neighbor is, but uh, Jesus would clarify that very well when he said uh, neighbor, from God's perspective, means anyone who has a need, not just fellow Jews. Way back in Exodus 23, verses 4 and 5, uh, God said this. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey wandering away, you shall surely return it to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying helpless under its load, you shall refrain from leaving it to him. You shall surely release it with him. Uh, it's pretty clear how God feels about uh, enemies. And then... Uh, in Job 31, beginning in verse 29. Have I rejoiced at the extinction of my enemy or exulted when evil befell him? No, I have not allowed my mouth to sin by asking for his life in a curse. Job realized that judgment belongs to God alone, and he would not sin by taking God's responsibility upon himself. Proverbs 25, verse 21 is another good passage. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. So what should be the conclusion we draw from these verses? God expected his people to love their enemies, not to judge them. Jesus brought a totally different way of looking at others from what the Jews understood and thought God expected. Love even your enemies. That's God's way. But it wasn't the way of Judaism or the way of the rest of the world. Paul reiterated this teaching from Jesus in the Old Testament in Romans 12, verses 17 through 21. 
Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. And if he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Love your enemies. Overcome evil with good. That's what God expects a true kingdom citizen to do. Okay, that's, it's good to say that, but how do we do it? What, what does that really mean? What actions on our part would demonstrate that we really do love our neighbors as God commands us to do? Well, first of all, let me say that what's commanded here is not a command to feel a certain way toward your enemies. We're not commanded to feel good toward them, to have warm, fuzzy feelings. That, that's not it at all. Emotions can be stirred up, but you can't really command emotions. Actions and the will can be commanded, and that's what we're looking at here. This command for believers to love their enemies is not directed at how we should feel, uh, how, how we should, uh, what our emotions should be toward uh, people who don't like us, but rather how we are to act toward them. Now, I say that because the word used by Jesus for love is agape, which is in Greek the highest form of love, selfless, self-sacrificing love, agape love. Now, Jesus wasn't speaking of natural affection. He wasn't speaking of the love of friendship. Agape love says, I will love this person because by God's grace, I choose to love this person. Feelings of love may or may not be involved. Usually, they would not be. Uh, it's an act of the will. This is love by making a choice. So, we are to love our enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Do things for them that will be beneficial for them. And in so doing, overcome evil with good. That's not normal, and, and we all know that. That's not natural. We all know that. That's not conventional wisdom. We understand that, but it is a demonstration of supernatural love, which is the love of God. And really, the, the motivation behind this is always, what good can I do that will bring my enemy closer to receiving Jesus as Savior? What good thing can I do for this person that will help the Holy Spirit get his foot in the door of this person's heart? I love my enemy, and therefore I will purposely choose to do everything I can to overcome his evil with God's good. I can't like someone who's broken into my house and stolen my property and threatened the life of my family. I couldn't like someone who was slandering me and making all kinds of false accusations. But by the grace of God, I can love them. I can see what's wrong with their lives and do all I can to work for their good and free them from their wicked, sinful ways. The question of agape love is never, who am I supposed to love? We are to love everyone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son to die for us. 
Jesus came and died because God loved the whole world, and we are to do the same. We are to love the whole world, everybody. According to Romans 5, 8 through 10, God loved each of us while we were still sinners and his enemies. If you refuse to trust God, you are his enemy, but he is not yours. That's the good news. And, and the same goes for us. From the other person's perspective, we may be considered an enemy. But from our perspective, we only see the other person as our neighbor and someone to love. How can you love the drunk driver who killed your daughter in the prime of her life? How can you love the drug dealer who made your grandson an addict? How can you love the lawyer who swindled your grandparents out of their home and property? Uh, you pray, you swallow hard, and you choose to do it. Because God first loved you as a sinner without faith in his son. Uh, without faith in his son, you were no better than the people I've just mentioned in God's eyes. Actually, our enemies can come in all shapes and sizes. Uh, an enemy might be just a, a spiteful neighbor. It might be someone who disagrees with your political beliefs. It might be a fellow church member that you feel like is standing in the way of the advancement of the kingdom of God in your church. It might be a business partner who thinks there are other ways to do things. It might be your parents that you disagree with. It might be your children. It might even be your spouse. We could describe our enemies as people who are just impatient, uh, vindictive, judgmental, self-righteous, or, or just plain mean to us. Uh, whether or not our life is in danger, we can see people as our enemies, and they can see us the same way. In all cases, our attitude remains the same. What can I do that will be a benefit to them and allow them to see the supernatural love of God through me? A true disciple of Jesus is not only to love his or her enemies and do good to those who hate them, they are also to bless those who curse them. Now, what, what does it mean to bless? What, is, what does Jesus mean here? Well, he means to say good things about them in response to the evil words they speak about you. Speak goodness and blessings into their life. Another way to say this would be uh, share, the, share the good news with them. Share the good news that Jesus Christ can save you from your sins. The followers of Jesus who heard these words uh, that day would soon be vilified and cursed and ostracized by their fellow Jews for nothing more than becoming Christians. They would be cursed in the sense of being banned from their synagogues in which they grew up. How were they supposed to respond? By choosing to love their enemies, by doing all the good they could for them in hopes they would see this as the supernatural love of God, and by blessing them, by saying good things to them in response to their hatred, especially telling them that Jesus loved them enough to die for them. Finally, Jesus tells his disciples that they are to pray for those who mistreat them. He would soon provide the ultimate example of this as he died on the cross when he prayed, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And Stephen, likewise, in Acts 7, verse 60, prayed a similar prayer for those who were stoning him to death. He said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. When you pray for those who persecute you and mistreat you, that is truly showing that your heart is one with God. 
when you can pray for your enemy, you're living up to the standard Jesus sets for us to love one another. Plain and simple, those who mistreat you should be at the top of your prayer list. I believe you're going to find that bringing these people before God in prayer is a really good way to bring your own heart in line with the heart of God and his love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor who suffered greatly at the hands of the Nazis during World War II. He was eventually killed for his faith. And speaking of Matthew 5, verse 44, Bonhoeffer said, Pray for those who persecute you. Uh, This is the supreme demand. Through the medium of prayer, we go to our enemy, we stand by his side, and we plead for him to God. For what we've seen thus far in the Sermon on the Plain, I hope it's obvious to you that a true Christian is known for at least these two things. First, hatred of sin. Hatred of sin in themselves, hatred of the sin which is bringing down those people around them. And then second, a Christian is known for how they love others, which is by demonstrating the supernatural love of God. Selfless, self-sacrificing, supernatural love, uh, which, comes, which can come only from God. In this, we have no greater example than that of our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, I ask you to bless this message and the truth of your word that uh, it contains. Uh, I thank you, Lord, that uh, you give us a higher standard. Uh, It's it's very obvious that this is not something that uh, comes from the world's point of view. This is certainly uh, a supernatural thing that we seek to demonstrate when we uh, bring to our enemies that selfless, self-sacrificing, supernatural love of, of Jesus Christ. Help us to love others, even when we don't agree with them, even when when they're most disagreeable. Uh, That's what you did uh, through your son, Jesus Christ, uh, on the cross. That's what we're called to do, and we have his perfect example uh, set before us. It's in Jesus' name I pray.